Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. June 27th, 2005, there were four Navy SEALs, and they crawled under the darkness of the night to do a reconnaissance mission on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. It was called Operation Red Wing, SEAL Team 6. Their goal was to basically get surveillance on a Taliban leader who had ties with Osama bin Laden. And so as they were doing this reconnaissance mission, some goat herders soon discovered the team. And so there was a little bit of an altercation, but basically nothing happened, and then they they were let go. Nothing really happened because it went against protocols for rules of engagement to engage civilian shepherds. But within about a few hours, SEAL Team 6 was ambushed by 30 local Taliban, and they were outnumbered under heavy fire, and the SEAL Team could not establish communication back with their unit, and so four members were killed. But there was one lone survivor named Marcus Luttrell. He was left unconscious. He was wounded. He crawled through the mountains on his hands and knees, And he was helped by local villagers who risked their lives to save him. He wrote the best-selling book, Lone Survivors. And it was just made into a movie back around Christmas time with Mark Wahlberg. That was a reconnaissance mission that ended badly. They were just there to gather intel to do a reconnaissance mission. But what happens when a reconnaissance mission goes well? and you get the intel, and you get a good report, and everything goes great. And you come back, and you've got all the information, but yet the majority says, no, not going to happen. They reject the really good idea. How many of you guys have ever had a good idea rejected? (laughs) I want you to think of some famous people who went on to do amazing things that were first rejected. A newspaper editor fired Walt Disney early in his career because this is what the newspaper editor said about Walt Disney. He lacked imagination and had no good ideas. After that, he started a number of businesses that didn't last long. He ended with bankruptcy, but then later on, Disney is one of the most popular names in entertainment to this day. What about Albert Einstein? He couldn't speak until he was four. He couldn't read until he was seven. Some of the teachers thought he had autism. Back then, they didn't know what autism was, but he was mentally challenged. He was expelled from school. He suffered from dyslexia, and he was refused admittance into the Zurich Polytechnical School. So he didn't even get into college. And later on, he became Albert Einstein. Well, he was always Albert Einstein. But So what I want you to think about are two words. Reconnaissance and rejection. What's a reconnaissance? It's a mission that you go survey and get intel and come back. What is rejection? When you reject an idea or you reject somebody. Now, why do I bring up these two words? We're going to be in Numbers chapters 13 and 14 tonight. 
And since we're diving into two chapters in the middle of a book, we're not going to look at the whole book of Numbers, what I want to do tonight to start out is to, to set the historical context for you, okay? Let's just get a little bit of background, big picture, okay? <clears throat> Let's go all the way back to Egypt. What happened in Egypt? Moses goes down and says, let my people go, and they go through the Red Sea, and they, they wander for a while, and then they come to the base of Mount Sinai, and God gives them the Ten Commandments, and so they're in Kadesh Barnea, and they've gotten, they've gotten the law, they've built the tabernacle, but now it's time for them to go spy out the promised land. I mean, if you're tracking with us on Sunday mornings, the promised land is a big deal, isn't it? It was promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're not there yet. It's taken 400 years to get there. And finally, the generation here is supposed to go spy out the land. But there's some things that happen in chapters 11 and 12 that set up chapter 13. Okay, so they're in Kadesh Barnea, which is an area, and, and God wants them to go in and scout out the land. But here's what happens in chapter, in chapter 11. In chapter 11, the people complain and grumble about Moses' leadership. They keep saying, let's go back to Egypt. We don't, we don't have meat. We want to go back to Egypt. And what does God do? God's anger is kindled. He burns the outside of the camp. And Moses is so bothered that Moses says, God, why don't you just kill me and get it over with? I don't want to take these people anymore. So in chapter 11, we have a rejection, a rejection of leadership. They reject God's leader. We don't want Moses as our leader. We're going to reject him. Okay, so that's in chapter 11, the people. In chapter 12, to make matters worse, Aaron and Miriam. Who are Aaron and Miriam? Aaron is Moses' brother and Miriam is his sister. His brother and sister oppose his leadership because he married a Cushite wife. Basically, they demonstrate racism and jealousy and prejudice. And it so bothers God that basically Miriam is struck with leprosy and they have to wait seven days before they can move forward. So in chapters 11 and 12, we have three rebellions, the people, the brother, the sister, and they're all rebelling against Moses, who's God's leader. So they're rejecting God's leader. They're rejecting leadership. Okay, so now we get into chapter 13. So there's things have been brewing under the scene here. The people are already at a point where they're not trusting Moses. They're in rebellion mode. They're in rejection mode. And so what happens is in chapter 13, we see the, the epitome of rejection and rebellion because here's the three things that people do in chapter 13. They not only reject leadership. Okay, they reject Moses. They not only reject the land, land's a big deal, right? The promised land, but ultimately they reject the Lord. Because when you reject the land and when you reject a leader, you're basically saying we're rejecting the Lord because the Lord's given us a leader, the Lord's given us the land. And so God had saved them by grace in the Exodus. He'd provided for their every need with the manna and quail in the wilderness. God had given them his law. And so how in the world will these stubborn, rebellious Israelites learn their lesson? So here's the big idea for chapters 13 and 14. And I need you to hang with me because this may sound weird. God's wrath against rebellion can only be satisfied by the forgiveness of a mediator. OK, 
Okay, so what are the keywords we see here? Let's just write them down. What's, what's one of the keywords we're going to see in these two chapters? God's wrath. What else are we going to see? Rebellion. What else are we going to see? Forgiveness and a mediator. So we're going to see these issues show up in these two chapters. Okay, God's wrath can be satisfied through the forgiveness of a mediator. And so this is the 12 spies. The 12 spies go in. And so this rebellion that we're going to see really has five major scenes. I like to use the word scenes in these Old Testament stories because they really flow like, almost you can picture them in your mind like a movie. And like in movies, there's scenes. Okay, so there's, there's a dramatic action and then there's a new set of actions. So there's five scenes, okay? Now, <clears throat> these scenes, I'm going to teach you something about Hebrew storytelling, okay? And even you see this in the Psalms sometimes. There is a term, and it's called a chiasm. Anybody ever heard of a chiastic structure or a chiasm? This is new terminology to you, okay? Here's what a chiasm is. I'm going to draw it on the board. So you have section A, then you have section B, then you have section C, and then you have kind of a mirror image of B and then a mirror image of A. That's a chiasm. So this A up here, this, this like scene one, would correspond here to scene five. They kind of tell, they're kind of mere images of each other. Scene two here, B, is going to be a mere image to scene four. They're going to kind of talk about the same thing. Now, in a chiasm, what do you have by itself? It's right in the middle. So you guys tell me, what do you think is the most important thing in a chiastic structure? Whatever shows up in the middle. Everything's pointing towards. So this is the most, like, so in a chiastic Hebrew structure, when you see these mirror images in these stories, this is supposed to really jump out at you as the most important thing that the author wants you to understand. So we see this story told in a chiasm. So scene one corresponds to scene five. Scene two corresponds to scene four. And then what's in the middle is really what the author wants you to focus on. It's kind of the climax. Okay, is that, does that make sense to everybody? It's called a chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M. It's a literary device. And so um, we'll look at this chiasm, and, we, and you can kind of see it unfold on the page. So let's read the first scene. The first scene, which was, is scene A, or A in the chiasm, scene one, this is simply the reconnaissance. Okay, the reconnaissance mission. So let's read chapter 13, verses 1 through 24, and let's read just the reconnaissance. This is scene 1, okay? Everybody there, Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel, and these were their names, from the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zakur, a bunch of names. I'm not going to read all those names. Okay, so you got a bunch of names all the way through verse 15 from all the 12 tribes. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses sent them to spy 
out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and up into the hill country and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rohab near Lebo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Sheshe, and Telmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Okay, pretty simple, right? Reconnaissance mission. What does God give specific instructions to to Moses? Send 12 guys in from the 12 tribes and spy. Spy out the land. And what are they supposed to look for? Are there people there? Are there fortified cities? Is the ground good? Is the land good? What's the produce like? Are there fortified cities with walls? They wanted to get some physical evidence of the fertility of the land because what had God been promising Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... This will be a land flowing with milk and honey, meaning what? It would be fertile, prosperous. It would be a rich land. And so they want to go in and see if it truly is. And so what does verse 20 say? What does Moses say to the people in verse 20? Be of good courage. Be of good courage. This encouragement would help them and be helpful to them. And as they go, who do they see? They see. Verse 22 says they find the descendants of Anak. Now, this is possibly a race of giants, a descendants of giants, literal giants in the land. What do they see as well in the Valley of Eshkol? Giant grapes. So you've got giant people, giant grapes. Which one's going to win out in the mind of the people? Giant people. Giant grapes. Is the glass half empty? Is the glass half full? There's some stinking big people in that land, but there's some awesome fruit in that land. So would they be fearful? Or would they see the fruit as God's promise to them? And so the narrative ends with some tension. There seems to be kind of an air of excitement. Ooh, these are big grapes. We're carrying them on poles. And yet there's also a hesitancy of seeing actual giants in the land. What attitude would win out in the end? Fear or hope? Uncertainty or assurance? Doubt or faith? Obedience or rebellion? So for a moment, we're left hanging with what's going to happen. Okay, so that's scene one. Scene one, A on the chiasm, is the reconnaissance, the reconnaissance mission. Go in and scout out, spy out the land. Okay, so let's go to scene two. What we see in scene two is the report. Say they're going to come back and they're going to report to Moses and they're going to report to the people what they saw. Okay, so this is in chapter 13, verses 25 through 33. Now, if you have the ESV, I think they do a pretty good job of breaking up these stories. And so uh, with the the headings there, I think they do a pretty good job of, of, of giving the natural breaks in the unit of the literature here. So let's pick up in verse 25. 
At the end of 40 days, so they'd spent 40 days in there. It wasn't just a one-time little reconnaissance. They, they wanted to spend at least 40 days looking around. They returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we've come, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Okay, so what's going to win out? Fear or hope? Everybody says, great fruit, but giant people. And... Basically, there's fortified cities, there's giants in the land, all these ites, the Hittites, the Jebusites. But then what does Caleb do in verse 30? What did, how does he emerge? Caleb emerges as a man of courage, a man of faith. What does he say? Let's do it now. Let us go up at once. We can do this. I don't care if there's giants in the land. God has given a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has got us through the Red Sea. God has given us manna and quail. God is with us. Why do we think he would not be with us now? Let's go do it. Let's go do it. But then next we see a play on words. Because what was the land? Was the land good or bad? The land was good. But what do they say? Look at verse 32. They brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. Was it a bad report of the land? They said the land devours its people. They're, they're basically saying the land is good, but they don't see it as good. They see it as bad. And so they're not seeing God's provision right in front of their eyes. Again, what's winning out, the fruit or the giants? God's promise or their fear. And so we're left with a little tension here again at the end of this because Caleb's the only one that stands up and says we can do it, but they're like, no, we can't do this. Okay, so reconnaissance report. Now, where are we in this chiasm? We're, we're moving to the next scene, which goes into chapter 14. Chapter 14 takes us into the next scene. What's the most important thing in a chiasm? The middle section. So what we're going to see now is the third section, which shows us the climax of the overall narrative. What we see is the rebellion. 
Okay. So we've seen the reconnaissance, we've seen the report, now we're at the rebellion. And so this is what this, Moses, who wrote Numbers, wants us to really focus in on, okay, this is the most important part of this whole narrative. How do the people respond? And it's, an, and it's going to shock you how they respond. So let's look at the rebellion. This comes in chapter 14, verses 1 through 10a. So let's read that. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall back by the, or to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Okay. The congregation weeps and mourns and cries. And what does verse 2 tell us? All the people of Israel did what? Grumbled. The word grumble is a key word that shows up. It shows up five times in this narrative. Grumble. There's an outcry. This is, not, this is not where the people are just kind of shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, let's just try it another day. This just isn't our day. Let's, let's, kind of, let's kind of wait till, let's kind of wait around. No, what are they doing? They're in anguish. They want to go back where? To Egypt. That's not a good thing. What does Egypt represent? Bondage, slavery, they had been in that situation for 400 years. So for them to have the mindset to go back, it would be better for us to die here in the wilderness or go back to Egypt and be slaves, but we don't want to go do what God has told us to do. And even then, we don't even want to have a, we want to have a new leader. We want to have a new leader. And now think about this. Had not the Lord taken care of every need of theirs in the desert? Okay, think about all the things that had happened up to this point in the nation of Israel. Had they been spared the angel of death on Passover night? Yes. Had they plundered the Egyptians on their way out? Yes. Did they cross the Red Sea on dry land? Yes. Did they not receive daily manna and daily quail? Had not God performed wonders in their midst? Did they have such a short memory? Why do you think now God would just drop the ball and say, well, all those things I did in the past, they really didn't mean anything. You're on your own now. How easy is it for them to forget all the blessings that God had done to lead them up to this point? And out of the whole nation, two guys, 
believed God that we can do this. And so the people cry out. And what do they say in verse 4? They rebel against leadership. Let's choose another leader. We don't like What happened in chapter 11? We want another leader. What happened in chapter 12? We want another leader. What happens now? We want another leader. Who's God's chosen leader for the Israelites? Moses. They're, rebe- they're rebelling against their leader. They're rejecting God's man. Okay, so they're not only rejecting God's man, they're rejecting God's land. What is the land that they're supposed to go into? It's not just any old land, is it? This is something that happened all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 3, 2 and 3, where God says to Abraham, I will bless you. I will give you a land. I will give you a promise. That was carried on to Isaac. That was carried on to Jacob. That was carried all the way down. The people had been looking forward to this land, and they're on the brink of going into the land, and the people are rebelling. And look at verse 9. It's interesting. What is Verse 5, though, what, Moses and Aaron just fall on their faces. They can't believe it. They're falling down, and I think they're just weeping in anguish because they can't believe it. But then who, who emerges kind of as a prophet? as a voice, Joshua. It's kind of a foreshadowing of the book of Joshua where he would actually be the one. It's interesting. Who's the one to actually lead the people into the promised land? Joshua. And here he is standing up and being a leader. Look at what he says in verse 9. This is the issue. A stark warning. What does verse 9 say? Do not what? Rebel against the Lord. Do not rebel. Do not fear the people. The, the, the people are bred to us. And so at this moment, he's not an official prophet per se, but Joshua emerges as a prophetic voice to call the people to repentance and to strongly rebuke and warn them against outright rebellion. And oftentimes God does that, does he not? In the midst of rebellion, in the midst of sin, has God often raised up a voice to preach the truth and call people back to repentance? Yes. Has that person been popular? Has that person been well-received? Did did it happen to Jesus? Did it happen to Paul? Did it happen to Peter? Anytime people are in sin, God often raises a prophet or a prophetic voice to call people to repentance. And so God is giving a warning here. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God would execute immediate judgment. You think I can think of two occasions in the Old Testament where God executed immediate judgment. One was the sons of Aaron who did strange fire at the altar and the fire consumed them. The other was when the Ark of the Covenant fell and Uzzah touched it and he was struck dead. Did God give warning during the flood? How many years did Moses preach? 120 years of preaching. Even Sodom and Gomorrah, did God give warning? Almost always, God gives people warning before He executes wrath. Because what does He want to do? He wants people to repent. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, I think, says God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So Joshua's words here are really an act of grace by the living God to His people to listen and not to rebel. And yet, what is so shocking here? What do they want to do? Verse 10, Then all the congregation said to stone them with 
stones. That's a surprising turn of events, isn't it? Because if you're reading this, what are you expecting? Maybe they would throw a hissy fit and go back to their tents and complain a little bit. Or maybe they would go back and maybe complain and, and grumble, but they've gotten to the point where they want to stone who? Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua. So this is not just a little type of, you know, they're a little bit angry. This is the epitome of rebellion, is it not? We want to, we don't like what you're saying. We want to murder our leaders. We want to stone them. We are so angry. What had been brewing in chapter 11? We don't like our leadership. What happened in chapter 12? We don't like our leadership. What's happening in chapter 13? We want to kill our leadership. Let's stone them. Okay? So what is... What's Moses drawing our attention to here about the people? Out of everything that we remember about the story, what's the one thing he wants us to remember? The people rebelled. And God gave them a warning not to rebel. But they wanted to stone them. Okay? So, okay, so that's the, that's the middle of the chiasm, the, the most important thing. Let's go to scene four, which is B hash mark here. It's the, it's the mere image of scene two. Okay? We see the response. Okay? If the people come back and give a report, here we're going to see the response to the rebellion. 10b through 38. Let's read that. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but... The glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, okay, so who's, who's responding here? God. How long will this people, what does your Bible say there? Despise me. What does despise mean? Hate. How long will these people hate me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? We just listed off a bunch, didn't we? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So what is God saying? We're going to kill all of them, and we're going to start over with you, Moses, just you, and maybe Joshua and Caleb. I'm just going to kill them on the spot. But look at verse 13. What does Moses do? Okay, so have we seen rebellion? Remember the key words? Have we seen rebellion? Yes. Have we seen God saying he's going to execute wrath? Okay. Have we seen a mediator yet? Okay. Moses is going to emerge as a, as a mediator, a covenant mediator. Let's see what Moses does in verse 13. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They've heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring his people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the lamb that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and of all your number listed in the census that 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land. Forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity. Forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all the this wicked generation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die." And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. Okay. Verse 11 is the key word that we see how long will these people despise me in the hebrew text this word despise is in a strong form which really means how long will these people spurn reject discard rebel vehemently how long will these people reject me? It's the strongest way you can say rebel. How long will these people really, really hate me? Isaiah 1, 4 uses the same type of terminology. Ah, sinful nation. The people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. And they are utterly estranged. Okay, this is not some half hearted, casual ignorance of God's law. This is a settled, intense, hateful rebellion of the living God 
expressed by the people in violence against leadership. To reject their leaders and to reject the land is an ultimate rejection of the Lord. They're basically saying, we don't want Moses, we don't want the promised land, and God, we don't want you. We're rejecting you. And God says, how long will you reject me? How long will you despise me? How long will you hate me? And because he's a God of absolute holiness, what does he say he's going to do? Do you see God's wrath? God's, God says, I'm going to pour out my wrath on this generation. Now let's go back to our main point that we talked about at the very beginning. God's wrath against rebellion can only be satisfied by the forgiveness of a mediator. And so what happens next is surprising, but we see it a lot with Moses, especially in Exodus and in Numbers. He emerges as the loving mediator between the rebellious people and the Holy One of Israel. What does he say to God? God, if you don't let the people get in the land, then all the nations, including Egypt, are going to think that you can't do it, that you're powerless. And God, we can't have that. We can't have the nations thinking you're powerless. And by the way, God, remember when you showed up to me? Remember when Moses wanted to see the backside glory of God, or see the glory of God? And God says, You can't see my glory and live, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And then God passes by, and God gives his name, I, the Lord, the Lord, am gracious, forgiving, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithless. Moses reminds God of that. Look at verse 18. What does he say? Back to God. God, this is your character. You've revealed this to me. I know this is your character. I'm interceding on behalf of these rebellious people. God, please don't pour your wrath out on these people because, verse 18, you're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You'll by no, you're forgiving iniquity and transgression. He's, 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 he's recalling back to God what God had revealed to him back in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord is slow to anger. Literally, the Lord is slow impatient and snorting his nose in anger. God is patient. God doesn't execute immediate justice. God, you're, you're slow to anger. The Lord is abounding in steadfast love. What's one of the most important words in the Old Testament? Hesed. It's God's tenacious fidelity and resolve to maintain a relationship with the sinful people. God showed Hesed to Abraham. He showed Hesed to Isaac. He showed Hesed to Jacob and said, that is not just a feeling. That's my covenant loyalty that I've promised to you. And Abraham says, God, you've promised covenant loyalty to your people. You're a God. You've chosen these people. You've loved these people. And then he says, you're a forgiving God. You, you cancel our sin as far as the east is from the west. You, you throw our sins to the bottom of the ocean. You're a forgiving God. But what does the rest of verse 18 say? In the midst of all this, God has to what? Punish the guilty. What does verse 19 say? Uh, at the end of verse 18, He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. God will punish sin. Why does God have to punish sin? Because He's a holy God. <clears throat> Is He just going to um, brush sin under the carpet? What, what, would ha- what would happen if God said, You know, guys... You know, you, you want to stone Moses, that's okay. You don't want to go in the promised land, that's okay. 
you've kind of, you know, you hate me, that's okay. You know, I'm not really that holy and awesome and powerful. I'm kind of a wimpy God and do whatever you want to do because at the end of the day, who cares? Does that sound like the God of the Bible? But what does Moses do? What does Moses do? He says what in verse 19? Please forgive them according to your love, according to your greatness, according to everything. So here's the chiasm. What happened in the report? What, what, what kind of report was it? It was a bad report. What's God saying about God? You're a good God. You're not, they've done bad, but God, you're a good God. So I'm appealing to your grace and I'm appealing to your mercy and I'm appealing to your love. Because what can Moses not appeal to? Moses cannot appeal to the intrinsic worth of the people for their sinful. God can't, Moses can't say to the people, God, look down on these people and they're so awesome. They've been so obedient. They've been so stellar. They've done everything you've asked them to do. They deserve for you to love them. Can Moses say that? What's he have to say? All he can do is appeal to mercy and steadfast love. It's the same with us today. We can never appeal to our goodness or our intrinsic worth as though God were obligated to show us mercy. We cannot appeal to anything from God except please don't kill me and show me grace. And that's basically what Moses does here. Moses emerges as a mediator. What's, he, what's a mediator? An intercessor. He's going between a holy God and a sinful people. And Moses is standing in the gap saying, God, you've got to forgive these sinful people. They deserve your wrath. They deserve your justice. But please forgive them because you're a forgiving God. And, and I'm the only one standing between a holy God and a sinful people. I'm the covenant mediator is what Moses is doing there. And what happens next is that God does not, He pardons them in a sense by not executing immediate judgment. I mean, God could have what? Killed all of them on the spot. But sadly, they do experience His wrath, don't they? I mean, we, we saw it there. They were not able to enter the promised land. And all that graphic language about your bodies are going to die in the desert. Your bodies are going to die in a wasteland. You're not going to see the promised land. You've hated me. You've despised me. You've been outright rebellious. You're not, not one of you is going to, to go into the land. Your children are, and Joshua and Caleb are, but not one of you is going into land. Look at verse 23. Well, verse 22, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to their fathers and none of those who what? Despise me. There's that word again. They've despised. But what about Caleb? Verse 24, Caleb though, he's a different spirit in him. Caleb's not a despiser. Caleb is passionate Caleb said we can do it. Caleb's a man of faith. And if you read further on, what happens in Joshua when they do get to go to the promised land? He's an 85-year-old man, and he says, I'm going to climb up and get my mountain. I've waited for this. I mean, he's, he, he's a man of passion. And so God repeats that word grumble. They've grumbled. They've grumbled. Verse 27, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumbling of this people of Israel, which they grumble against me. 
Down in verse 29, who have grumbled against me. And God says they're going to die in the wilderness. How long are you going to be wandering? 40 years for every day that you were spying out the land. So 40 years of, basically 40 years of, it's kind of a really kind of a sad sentence of judgment. You're going to wander for 40 years and you're going to die in the desert. And you're going to be carcasses for birds and you're not going to get the promised land. Because you rejected your leader, you rejected the land, and so you get exactly what you wanted. Did they even want the land? Can we say God's being unfair here? Did they even want the land? That's what I'm, I don't know if this is trying to answer. Yeah. There's no record of their response to this at all? There is in just a minute, okay. which is shocking. Hold that thought. There's a response, and it's shocking. But here's what I want to do. God has spoken. Look at verse 35. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do. When God says, I've spoken, I'm surely going to do this, what does that mean? Their fate is sealed. So God has spoken in judgment, and all the people can do, and this may answer your question, and all the people can do is accept their just sentence from the hand of the sovereign judge who's made his ruling. Can they go to God and say, no, wait a minute. When God, When the judge says, Verdict closed, case closed, I've spoken, I'm going to do this. God's going to do it. But next we see something that's truly surprising. So finally we see the retreat. And this is a parallel image to the reconnaissance. What was the reconnaissance? They went into the land to spy it out. Now we're going to see something interesting. Okay? What, what did God command them to do up here? Go spy the land. And what happens? Caleb comes back and says, we can do it. The people say, no, we can't. They rebel, and God says, you're dying in the wilderness. Now, let's see how the people respond, Don. This is surprising. We've got the last section of the chiasm here. Let's look at verses 39 through 45. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are! We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses says, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies." For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you've turned your back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. This is shocking. What do they do? Instead of mourning with godly sorrow and repentance, the people in a bewildered move of impetuous frenzy decide to disregard everything they've just been through and go occupy the land that they had just been forbidden to enter. What are they thinking? This time we'll do it, God. We get the picture. We'll go do it. We'll go take the land. But what does Moses say? God's not with you. The Ark of the Covenant is not with you. You're going to fall by the sword. You've rejected me. I've rejected 
you. And there's a, there's a real big hint there in verse 44. What is verse 44? They presumed. I don't know what your translations say. They presumed to take the land, even though neither the Ark of the Covenant, which represented what? God's presence, nor Moses, God's leader, was with them. The word presumed is somewhat difficult to translate in the Hebrew, but most scholars say that it means to be heedless, to be reckless, or to move forward in arrogance. So what do they say? Okay, God has just told us that we're going to die in the desert. He's told us that we've hated Him. He's told us that we're not going to get the land. We pretty much wanted to stone our leaders. Let's go cry for a little bit and let's go take it. Does that make any sense to anybody? What are they thinking here? Man, we sure messed up. Let's do it right this time. And God says, no, I'm not with you. Moses is not with you. The Ark of the Covenant is not with you. And as a matter of fact, how does the chapter end? It's the retreat. The retreat. They are being chased. They are being defeated. They are being pursued by the Amalekites and the Canaanites. You see, in the first section, section A, there's a successful reconnaissance mission. And now, parallel image here, there's a miserable retreat. There's a miserable retreat. So let's think about the big idea again. God's wrath against rebellion can only be satisfied by the forgiveness of a mediator. Now, we can approach this story kind of as a morality tale and say that's a cool story from the Old Testament that teaches us some things. But in redemptive history, and in Luke chapter 24, what did Jesus say? Everything in the Old Testament points to, to me. So we've got to look at this through a Christocentric or through a Christ-centered or a gospel-centered lens. Why is the story here? Is this more than just a morality tale of an ancient people that gives us a positive model to follow? so we won't be like them? Or is the same thing for us? The only way to escape God's wrath for our rebellion is through the forgiveness of the mediator as well. But the mediator is not the pleadings and prayers of Moses. Jesus stands today as the one mediator between God and man who pardons iniquity. You see, Moses is a type of Christ here. It's a type in shadow. It's called a typology. Um, a typology means that when you see a typology in the Old Testament, it's where a person or an institution or a figure is a, stands like as a, as a type of Christ. So in this story, Moses becomes a type of Christ. What did Moses do? He was a covenant mediator. What does a covenant mediator do? He stands in the gap between a holy God and a sinful people and, and, and asks for forgiveness. Okay. Now, what was, the only, what, what, what was the only thing Moses could do? Could Moses forgive the people's sins? Could Moses die for the people's sins? Why? Because he's just a man like they are. All he could do was intercede with pleadings and prayers. For us, the only one that can intercede between a holy God and our sin is Jesus. OK? 
Okay? So Moses was a type of Christ in that he interceded on behalf of the people and appealed to God's mercy, but he in no way could atone for their sins. He in no way could be a substitutionary atonement that would cancel God's wrath. All attempts by Moses as a mediator ultimately failed for that generation, didn't it? As a covenant mediator, he pleaded with God, and what did God do? God still poured out his wrath. Now, does Jesus fail in his mediatorial work? No, he never fails. And so 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 says, For there is one God, and there is what one? One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Now, Jesus is the only one that can atone for sins. Jesus is the only one that can cancel God's wrath. Jesus is the only one that can stand between successfully a holy God and a sinful people. And so we can look at the story from a distance and say, I'm sure glad I wasn't those you know, Old Testament people that got died in the wilderness. But the question for you, are you sinful? Are you rebellious? Are you wicked? And do you stand under God, the wrath of a holy God and without Christ? We're nothing. So we all need Jesus as the mediator. Now, the writer of Hebrews gives a commentary on this generation. Hebrews chapter 4, 1 through 6. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. What was the good news that came to them? We can take the promised land because God is with us. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It was a lack of faith on the people's part. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath... They shall not enter my rest. God said in his wrath, that generation's not going to enter the promised land. So, so the word rest here is a metaphor for promised land. It was a promised land rest. It was, it was a rest from being in Egyptian bondage. It was a, a rest from these nations attacking them. The promised land was this, this place of rest, this place of flowing with milk and honey. And God says that generation's never going to enter the rest. They're going to wander and die in the wilderness. They're not going to enter the rest. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. So God's tying it back to the Sabbath, to, the, to creation. God rests on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Why did they not enter the rest? Why did they not enter the promised land? Because they disobeyed. They did not unite it with faith. That's what he's saying there. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us that that generation didn't enter God's rest. And he makes it saying, okay, today... For us, there's still a rest to be entered. It's not a physical land called the promised land. What's the new rest that we get to enter? Ultimately, Christ in the new heavens and the new earth 
the ultimate Sabbath rest in Christ. How do you not get into the rest? How do you not get into the promised land? How do you not get into heaven? Through rebellion and disobedience. And so here's what's going on here. Only only Christ can satisfy the justice of God against our sin. So that generation in Numbers wandered in the wilderness and died, never entering the promised land. This is a picture of what waits everyone who does not trust in the only mediator, Jesus, to satisfy God's wrath against his or own, her own personal rebellion. Instead of wandering in the desert and experiencing physical death, all those who die in their sins will spend eternity outside of God's promised land rest in a place of eternal conscious torment called hell. So lying dead in the wilderness is a physical picture for what hell is. Eternal separation from God's rest forever. Not being able to enter heaven because of rebellion, because of sin. And so there's another warning from the writer of Hebrews. What was the warning? What was the big warning here in the middle part that Joshua... Let's go back. Let's go back to, um, to, to, to chapter 14, verse 9. That's, that's the mo- Probably 14, verse 9 is like... The, if there's one... Like if this is coming to a laser-sharp point here with this chiasm, chapter 14, verse 9 is probably like the center of this whole chapter. What's the center chapter? What's the main verse there? Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not rebel. Don't despise me. Hebrews 4, 7, the writer of Hebrews tells us, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't reject your leader. Who's our leader? Christ. What do they reject? They reject their leader and their land. For us, who's our leader? Jesus. What's our land? Heaven. So if you reject Jesus and you reject heaven, you ultimately reject God. And the writer of Hebrews and Joshua are both saying, don't harden your heart, don't reject, don't rebel. And then in Numbers 14, 18, let's look at Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but... He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. In Numbers 14, 18, we see the alarming words that God will by no means clear the guilty. And what's the problem with all of us? We're all guilty. We all deserve condemnation. And yet listen to Moses' words. Pardon the iniquities of this people according to your steadfast love. What words do we hear from the Savior, the one true mediator? Do those, does that prayer of Moses become real for us as believers? Yes. God does pardon our iniquities. God does show steadfast love. God does cancel out His wrath through Jesus. That's why we have Ephesians 1, 7-8. In Him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And so Jesus 
stands as the one true mediator who can satisfy the holy wrath of a God who has every right to, to express his wrath towards those who have rebelled, those who are guilty. So the only way that you get out from being guilty is to trust in the one mediator, Jesus, who brings you to God. And look what happens when you become a Christian. You hear these words from Romans 8.34. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is what? What's Jesus doing? He's interceding. Is that the same thing as mediator? Okay. Moses is a picture of Christ, but Moses could only go so far because he was just a man. And you see Moses praying and interceding and pleading over and over again. God, forgive them. God, God, show your love. But Moses could only do so much because he was a man. Jesus, as the one mediator, finished the work on the cross, died, rose again. And where is he right now? He's at the right hand and he's continuing to what? Be our mediator. Intercede on our behalf. So that when somebody comes to condemn us, what do they say? If the devil wants to come to you and condemn you, who, do they, who does the devil have to get through? Jesus. So if the devil comes and says, you're guilty, Jesus is right there at the right hand of the Father saying, no, he's not. No, she's not. I've died for my child. I'm interceding for my child. I'm the one mediator, and my blood covers that child. You have no right. You have no place here to bring condemnation. They are free of all accusation because of what I've done. I'm the one mediator. Their sins have been forgiven. And so, you know, for non-Christians, they need to hear the message. I know most all of us are Christians in this room. Non-Christians need to hear the message. You're guilty under God's wrath, and you've rebelled. And this holy God has every right to punish you, and not just to make you die in the wilderness, but to die eternally separated. And your only hope is the one mediator, Jesus, who forgives all of your sins and cast yourself on him. But what about us as Christians? You may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm pretty good. I've not rebelled. I've not rejected. I've not despised God. What's the key word that shows up in this verse over and over again? Maybe you've been guilty of grumbling. Yeah, you, you've, you've got your home in heaven. You're going to enter that promised rest. You've, you've trusted in the one mediator. But maybe you show more grumbling to Jesus than you show worship to Jesus. Maybe you're grumbling that things are not working out for you the way you want them to work out. Maybe you've not truly recognized God's wonderful provision in your life and you're acting like a spoiled child in the midst of God's fatherly care for you. We, we have to sit here and laugh at the Israelites. I mean, none of us are ever going to go through the Red Sea, are we? None of us are going to have manna and quail pillar of fire. None of us are going to have water come out of a rock. None of us are going to have the, these amazing things happen to us that the signs and wonders that that generation had. But how easy was it for them to grumble? God, you don't provide. God, I don't like my leader. God, I want to go back to Egypt. God, this isn't fair. It even says there, God provided them shoes. They never, their shoes never wore out and their clothes never wore out. Now ask the question, how that happened without sewing machines back in that day? God provided miraculously for their shoes. And we look at the nation of Israel and we're like, how can they be so you know, 
cut and pick and spoiled. And then we have to look at ourselves and say, how many blessings have we received from the Lord? And yet how often do we grumble and complain and want to go back to Egypt because somehow God hasn't come through for us? Listen to what Philippians 2, 14 through 15 says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I've said this before. If you want to be a witness for Jesus, when you grumble, it squashes that. What does he say? You, in a, in a, in a crooked, do we live in a crooked and twisted generation? But what are we to be doing in this crooked generation? We're to shine as lights. We're to let our light shine. We're to, we're to be different. We're to be sharing the gospel. We're to be looking and acting differently. And so what does the world do? The world grumbles and complains. So when you grumble and complain, you don't look any different than the world. And so Paul's saying here, listen, if you really want to make a difference in your testimony, if you really want to shine, if you really want to look different than this crooked and twisted generation, then don't grumble and don't dispute. Be thankful. Don't be a spoiled child. Here's the beautiful thing that's happened to us. We've received the promised land rest. If you're a child of God, this promised land rest, you've received it. Now, we're not there yet, but it's reserved for us in heaven. And once we get there, we will experience the full joy of everything that God has waiting for us in Christ, who is the ultimate rest, who is the ultimate Sabbath, who is the ultimate mediator. And so as we think about all that God has done for us in Christ, let us remember Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through Jesus, the covenant mediator who stands between a holy God and a rebellious people and who ushers us into the ultimate promised land, the new heavens and the earth, to be with him forever and ever. Questions? Observations? We've got about 20 minutes. A type? You... Sometimes you can read these stories and just read it as a story. Oh, this is a story about people getting, you know, wanting to stone their leader and God puts them in the desert in yeah. 40 years and you just go on. Yeah. For, that's how it's been for all of you. Know, nobody's ever put it like that until soldiers now too. The typologies. Yeah, Jesus said in Luke 24, um, he opened their minds to the scripture and said the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all speak about, about me. And that doesn't mean every single verse, you know, you try to find Jesus in every verse. Um, but it does show us there's typologies, there's allegories, there's types and shadows, there's promise, fulfillment. There's all these things going on in the Old Testament that point us towards Jesus. And especially when we have New Testament commentary, like in Hebrews, you can look back. But it, it, this isn't hard to see. The covenant medi- Moses is a covenant mediator between God and the sinful people pleading that God would destroy them. I mean, it's a perfect picture of Christ. When you explain it, when somebody yeah. explains it like yeah. that. Other questions?
Aren't you thankful that God doesn't execute immediate justice and that God is kind and that God is slow to anger? Yeah. Let's go to one other passage because this, I think this is, let's go to, um, it's in 2 Timothy, uh, is it First or Second Timothy? It's one of the Timothys, but I'll know it when I see it. Um, yeah, go to First Timothy chapter twelve. This is Paul. This is kind of Paul's testimony. What, what was Paul's life like? And we're kind of switching gears, but we're talking about a rebellious. If there was a rebellious, blasphemous, hard-hearted, vehemently violent people that hated God, who was it? This generation. Okay. Now, it's interesting. The generation in the wilderness here, the, the generation that died. They have a bad rap all throughout the rest of the Bible, and they should, right? I mean, they, they rejected God's plan, and it just surprised, just shocking that they wanted to go right back in the promised land without God's help or anything. And so, and let's think about Paul, New Testament. If there ever was a blasphemer or a rebellious person or a violent person who hated God, he thought he was on God's side, it would be Paul, right? So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, 1 Timothy. Sorry, 1 Timothy 1, 12. 1 Timothy 1.12. Let's, this is kind of a little bit of Paul's, bio, just a statement, and I always go back to this because, and let's just spend some time meditating on this passage because I think it, it may bring everything into focus, okay? I thank Him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He's judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent but i received mercy because i acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in christ jesus the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that christ jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom i'm the foremost but i received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost jesus christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's unpack that in the short time we have together. I wasn't planning on doing that, but this is a rich passage and it's awesome. So what's Paul's life before? Blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. Does that sound like that generation in the wilderness? Pretty close, right? But what did God show him? Verse... Verse 13, I received mercy. How did he act before he was saved? Ignorantly in unbelief. I'm persecuting these Christians thinking that I'm doing God a favor, but really I was ignorant of who God was, and I was an unbeliever. So Paul's saying I was an ignorant, unbelieving, violent, insolent persecutor. How do you like that to be your description? Oh, Allah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm, sure is, I'm sure Islamic people would probably think they're doing God a favor by killing Christians because they're... No, Allah. Islamic. Yeah, but, but anyway, so, so what was that? But Paul wasn't. 
No, Paul wasn't Islamic. You know, Islam, Islam showed up way lately. But, but Paul here says, I mean, he, he admits, who he, Paul was never shy to admit who he was. He never hid the fact, I was a violent, oppressive, persecuting, ignorant, unbeliever. And then what word does he use there? As a matter of fact, if there's a, if there's a category of sinner, I'm the foremost. I'm the chief. He makes up a Greek word. I'm the mostest. If there's any person that deserves wrath, if there's any person that deserves hell, if there's any person that deserves to die in the wilderness of hell forever and ever because of rebellion and blasphemy, it's me. I'm at the top of the list. I've got the resume to prove it. I've got the t-shirt to prove it. I am the worst of sinners. Put me at the top of the list. And most of us here can't say that, can we? I mean, we think we're really bad sinners, but think about Paul. Any of you got to hear killed Christians? Anybody knocked on doors and dragged them out? And sat there at the stoning of a saint. Paul's got us beat in the sin category. If we we ever think, I mean, I'm not downplaying our sin, but Paul has some, some sin on us, okay? But whether we've ever done the full extent of Paul's sin, have we had anger in our heart? Have we acted in unbelief? Have we been murderous in our heart? Have we been violent in our hearts? Do we deserve God's wrath? Yes. Can we all say I'm the foremost of sinners? We can say it to ourselves because we think every day, if people knew what was in my heart, if people knew what I said, if people knew my life, I would crawl into a hole and never want to be seen again because I'm the worst of sinners. All of us can say that, can't we? Okay. But look at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world, and this is very important, to do what? What does it say? What does your Bible say? To save sinners. Did Jesus make it possible to save sinners? Was it a, was it a hypothetical? He came to kind of hypothetically accomplish it? What does he say? I came to save. So when Jesus died on the cross, did he make salvation possible or did he actually secure our salvation? He secured our salvation. He saved sinners of whom I'm the foremost. So there's the cross right there. The death of Jesus Christ, His mission, Jesus' mission was to come into the world to literally save sinners. Not good people. What happens before you have to get saved? You've got to realize you're lost, right? That's the problem with a lot of people in our culture. They don't believe they're lost. They don't believe they're guilty. They don't believe they're under God's wrath. And so in order to truly see the beauty of salvation, what do you have to come to the point of realizing? I'm a wretch. I'm a blasphemer. I'm a sinner. I deserve God's wrath. I deserve God's hell. I I am totally undeserving of this. And until I come to that point, the cross makes no sense because I don't realize I need salvation. I'm okay. I'm good. But look at what happened in verse 16. Paul repeats, I've received mercy. He said it back there in verse 13. I've received mercy. He uses the word foremost again. Why did he receive mercy? Why did God save him? Why did Jesus do this? What did Jesus display in Paul's life there in verse 16? Perfect patience. Aren't you thankful that God shows you in Christ perfect patience? And it wasn't just for Paul. Who was it? He says it's an example to those who were to believe. Who's that? Us. So Paul's testimony of God's grace and mercy in his life as a blaspheming, violent opponent 
is an example for us that God can show the same thing to us in Christ. Now, how does Paul end? Paul just erupts in some worship here and says, as I think about this, as I think about being the foremost, as I think about being the worst, as I think about all the ignorance and unbelief and blasphemy I've done, as I think about the mercy that God showed me in Christ, as I think about the perfect patience, as I think about what Jesus did to save me, the only thing I can say in verse 17 is, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. It's almost like you can almost picture Paul writing and just thinking about his life in Christ and he just has to erupt in praise. When you realize what God has saved you from and has given you salvation, it should erupt in to Jesus, to the King, immortal, invisible. This, this is all God's glory. This is to Him. This is to the mighty God. Honor and glory to, forever and ever. Amen. I don't deserve this. I don't, I'm, God's not obligated to show this. All I, Paul doesn't say to me, oh, God did this great thing to me. What does he say? To the King, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so our response to God's wrath being satisfied through the forgiveness of a mediator, Jesus, should ultimately lead to what? Worship. And we should never get over it. And our lives should be a total life of worship. Now, I'm starting to preach my sermon for this Sunday, so I need to stop because that's kind of a preview of what's going to happen this Sunday when we look at Jacob's life, totally different story, but the same concept, that we should never get over the fact that God saved, and what is amazing grace, that God would save a wretch like me. And so we should never get over our salvation. Yes, Teresa. Oh, okay, another question. Okay, so... Let me get a drink of water while you're asking. Um, so, okay, so in today's... Okay, I have this friend, and I know there's a lot of people out there with, you know, she's, she's like, God knows my heart. God knows me. Um, God knows where I stand, da-da-da-da-da. But yet, she doesn't believe everything in this book. Okay. Um, one, of the, one of the things she said was, do you really believe he had two of everything on Noah's Ark? I'm like, yeah, that's what it says. I, you know, it's, and so then she goes on, she's like, names off. I don't even know what the, several animals. He, he had this, and he, I'm like, I don't know what animals were back then, but yes, that's what it says in no in the. And they were baby animals yeah. too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have to be full grown. So, is, what, so is your question? What's your ultimate question well, about? The, I mean, can is she still saved if? All right, a couple of things. Number one, I can't look into someone's heart right. and determine whether they're saved or not. Has she given a profession of faith where she claims to be a Christian? She claims to be a Christian, yeah. Okay. But she's having a hard time understanding some of God's Word. Right. Okay. There are some people I think are legitimate Christians. They've truly been born again that may struggle with, they're like immature in their faith. But I would say if she's not teachable and she doesn't have a soft heart towards learning and she kind of has a hard heart like, I already know it and I don't want to hear anything right. and she's not open to correction, I would be worried that she's hardened her heart to instruction, which may give evidence that she may not be a believer. I don't know if she is. But if you're truly a believer, if you're truly a believer and somebody comes and shows you correction, you may not receive it at first, but hopefully the Holy Spirit will soften your heart to want to be teachable and, and to maybe to at least be open to learning some things and not being so hard and resistant. 
So I don't know. I can't answer if she's a Christian or not. Nobody right. can do that. But I would say that there are different levels of maturity in Christians and different levels of understanding. I think the big issue for me is, is there a teachability? Is there a softness? Is there an openness? Or is there this, this resistance where I, I'm, I'm hard-hearted? I would be very concerned if she had a hard-hearted resistance and you know, kind of flippant, well, God knows where I'm at, as opposed to, man, I really need to submit myself to what God says, and I, I want to be right with God, and I want to I want to bend under His authority. That type of language sounds more like a Christian than... So I don't really know the answer to that, but I guess I just keep praying for her that God would soften her heart and open her eyes to truth, and that um, she would she would have a soft heart towards being teachable. Were you going to say something, Don? Oh, like you were raising your hand. All right. Well, um, we've got just a few more minutes. Any other questions at all? And I have no idea what we're going to talk about next week. So <laughs> you did Haggai and Numbers. We may we may do something in the New Testament next week. I don't know. We'll see. I'll figure that out. Anything else? Interesting lessons. Okay. Interesting lessons. I'll have to be honest with you guys. Last summer, I took an Old Testament class at seminary, and I had to prepare two sermons. And I did all this work and never got to preach them. So this is the fruit of two. I was assigned Haggai and Numbers, and it didn't fit into Genesis, and it didn't fit into them like... It just didn't fit, so I thought, i got to use this some point. So all this work I had really done, like, last summer, but this is my, you know, the opportunity to actually teach it to a live audience. So I figured never waste an opportunity in, um, to, to share stuff. So, um, But I don't have any other <laughs> seminary assignments that I've been assigned that I haven't done yet. Oh, the homiletical plot? Yeah, no, you don't want to hear about the homiletical <laughs> plot. The homiletical plot. <laughs> I read some dumb preaching books, but I was okay. All right, well, let's pray. I don't say dumb preaching books. I mean, I've got to read eleven books before, before Ju- July, and uh, right, yeah. So, well, let's pray and let's thank the Lord that He has sent Jesus to be our covenant mediator to appease God's wrath and to forgive us and to show us steadfast love and to show us perfect patience. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful that you have come in a greater way than Moses could ever come. Jesus, you are God in the flesh. You came down as our covenant mediator to be the go-between between a holy God and us as sinful rebels. And we're like Paul, Jesus, where we admit we're the chief of sinners, we're the foremost, we're, we're blasphemers, we are rebellious, we are stiff-necked, we deserve punishment and wrath. But Jesus, we're so thankful that in you, God showed his perfect patience. In you, God showed his hesed, his steadfast love. In you... Uh, Jesus, God showed His forgiveness. And and, and since we've trusted in You, Jesus, we have You as our Lord and Savior, and we have the promise of seeing You face-to-face in the ultimate promised land, in the ultimate Sabbath rest, and that we will be able to enter that land that even the Old Testament people look forward to, not not a piece of geography in, in Israel, but ultimately our final home. And so, Jesus, thank You for being the one mediator between God and man. Thank You for giving Your life as a ransom for us. Thank You for all the things You've done for us. Help us not to grumble. Help us not to be spoiled children, but to be thankful and always in awe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.